Hello, and welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast about design impact from Design Museum Everywhere. It's Thursday, October 1st, 2020. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of the Design Museum, and I'm joined by your other host, the amazing Liz Pollack. Liz is our vice president. Hey, Liz. Hi, Sam. On today's episode, we'll be talking about freelance design, how to be a freelancer, and some advice from some expert solo practitioners. If you're thinking about freelancing, I know you'll get a lot of insights from our two guests. Both have over 10 years experience as freelancers. Our guest co-host is the amazing Trish of all trades, Trish Fontanilla, and we'll all be interviewing Sydney Janey of Sydney Janey Design. She has a graphic and design practice, which she has run since 2007. And as always, we'll share our weekly dose of good design. Before we chat freelancing with our experts, Liz, what's new at the Design Museum? A lot. Yeah, as usual. I'm excited to share that the fall issue of Design Museum Magazine is in the hands of our members and subscribers. It's themed around the future of the office, which I know is on a lot of people's minds right now. And this issue is just packed with great articles and content. We have a great article from Ryan Hoffman, who spoke at a recent Design Museum Live event. Her article expands on that event and is all about the rise of the remote meeting. There's also a great article from Angela Yeh about designing and a thriving career in an uncertain world. There are great interviews and profiles, and I think you're going to love this issue. I'm sure many of you are actually probably already <laughs> reading it. If you don't yet receive Design Museum Magazine, subscribe uh, and we'll mail you the fall issue. This issue leads into our Workplace Innovation Summit, which is coming up. This year, instead of a one-day in-person event, it'll be a week-long virtual summit with events, demonstrations, and more. So check that out on our website and get your pre-sale tickets uh, to save a bunch of money. Yeah, for sure. The summit is going to be awesome this year. Okay, so I'm going to do that thing where I that you're not supposed to do when you give a speech, which is I'm going to quote the dictionary. But I saw an article recently on merriamwebster.com about the origins of the word freelance. And so it comes from medieval times. Uh, basically, a free lance was a medieval mercenary who would fight for whichever nation or person paid them the most. Uh, they make a joke in the article that freelancing has literally always been a battle, which I love. Uh, so with the economy and recession because of COVID-19, some organizations are hiring, but many are holding off. And I remember in the last recession, uh, as the economy improved, organizations maybe weren't hiring full-time, but they needed help and were turning to freelancers in droves. Uh, I did some freelancing between my corporate design job and starting the museum. Uh, that was a fun time we could maybe talk about. <laughs> uh, sometimes it is indeed a battle and uh, there's lots of great things about it too. So to talk more about it, uh, we have a great guest co-host with us today. Trish Fontanella is a freelance community builder, customer experience developer, and event manager. Her career is pretty amazing. As she mentions on her website, she's gone from a party coordinator at Chuck E. Cheese to Vice President of Community and Customer Experience at a video messaging startup. Trish has done it all, and I know she's learned a lot in the process. Trish, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thanks for being here. I wonder if we could start with, like, what is freelancing? At least, like, what does it mean to you? Yeah. Um, so based on that definition, I'm a horrible freelancer uh, <laughs> because I don't go for the projects that pay me the most. Um, I'm a little bit 
of a bad freelancer in that I'm very, I think as a community builder and also working in CX, because I have to be so close to the product, I'm very picky with clients. Um, and that has been very, uh, both good and bad. It's, it's honestly been good and bad for me. Um, but for me, yeah, it's, it's the opportunity to work for myself, to be able to use all the things that I've learned at a lot of different companies and work with people that I've met over the years that I wouldn't be able to work with if I had taken, you know, a full-time job. Mm. So, mm-hmm. um, for me, it's, it's definitely freedom. I, I'm really bad at waking up, um, in the morning. So that is always, been a plus and I also <laughs> like to uh kayak and so I've also been kayaking a lot I'll just throw that in there as a tip yeah I'm seeing some of your everyone. photos I mean that's a perk of freelancing right yeah being able to I mean it's I think in this kind of remote world I think that's the dream that everyone wants right I don't think people actually mind working full-time mm-hmm. they just want the ability to pick up their kids, to exercise in the middle of the day, to if their brain isn't working at 9 a.m. and it's working at 11 p.m. to work on a project. Mm -hmm. So I feel like this in the after times, which is is what I call (laughs) post-pandemic, I call everything the before times and the after times. I like it. It'll be interesting to see how freelance, you know, either goes way up, companies Mm -hmm. start thinking about it in a different way, or the way companies kind of restructure what full-time looks like. And because of that freedom, a lot of freelancers that have gone into doing this because they want to be self-employed decide, oh, wait, like this actually sounds like a really great opportunity because this particular company understands, you know, what my family life is like, what my, what inspires me, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that could definitely be yeah an evolution for sure. I could see that you know the, the pandemic's changing so much. Someday. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Someday. <laughs> Are there different kinds of freelancing? I mean, I know I, you know I love all your materials online, and you know you're a consultant. It's like freelancing, and is that like a solo practitioner? Yeah. I'm wondering, is that all the same? Is it different? Are there different types? Yeah. So I think um, there's kind of just the general vocabulary that I feel like. What do you say at a cocktail party? (laughs) Like I generally, to be honest, in the before times, I would say uh, consultant because I remember when I first started freelancing full time, people would say, oh, you freelance? Does that mean you're unemployed? Like, (laughs) no, man. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. I actually have work. I probably work more than you do, to be honest. (laughs) Um, So that was like my party thing. But you know, depending on the company, some people use it interchangeably. For me, freelances, there's a specific project that you're coming in to do and you have a deadline and X, Y, Z, and you're you're doing some execution. And the consulting side generally, and I think this kind of fits with general definitions, is you're working with management and you're offering mm. advice and you're setting out some sort of plan based on whatever your background is. Um, but for me, I've actually seen, I've come in as a consultant and said, kind of done in the customer experience world, I'll do some journey mapping. And mm. and when I offer that advice, they're like, well, we don't really have people for this. Do you want to come and do a project uh, on XYZ thing? Mm-hmm. So I'll do my, um, I'm not an official therapist. I only have a minor in psychology in college, <laughs> but I've been called a startup therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, so after doing some journey mapping, they'll think, 
they'll say like, oh, based on your abilities, you want to come in and kind of help us with these things because our team's in the weeds. So like help build something after I've suggested it through I mean, the consulting that seems side like the and dream. kind of come in. Yeah. yeah. You consult and then you're like, by the way, you know, you should just hire me. I can do this it. thing. <laughs> and I, I like y'all and it's yeah. a good, it's a good way to, I think consulting is a really great way to kind of get into and see if you like the company to do mm, something mm-hmm. longer term. Totally. Well, I think we'd love to just hear about about your journey. I know you mentioned sure. startups and consulting and just like how did you get into the world of freelancing to begin with? So my freelance anniversary is in October. Uh, and at the time, I was working at Freight Farms, uh, which if people don't know Freight Farms, they're um, based in Boston, it's a 40-foot shipping container. Freight Farms is a 40-foot shipping container that allows you to grow food in it year-round. I was their head of community and customer experience. It was a lot like actually being an internal consultant because I came in, the first thing I did is I did 30-minute interviews with everybody. And I talked about their customer experience and employee experience. But I got a little bit obsessed with Filipino food. So I actually left because I wanted to work on um, a Filipino restaurant uh, project. Mm -hmm. And I obviously needed to pay myself. So I started (laughs) freelancing. There it is. And then there you go. (laughs) And then uh, the pop-up I was doing and I planned while I was at Freight Farms, um, the chef... And the people I was working with, we did the pop-up and it was great, but we decided that we weren't the best team to open a restaurant together. Mm, mm. So it was kind of funny because <laughs> I had given Freight Farms um, almost five months notice. Wow. I'm, again, that person that you are does stuff best. like that. <laughs> so for me, I, I still, uh, up until the before times, in January actually, I had still been doing pop-ups and working on um, Filipino food opportunities. And I launched a Filipino community, which I'm still working on and we do videos and podcasts and such, but I really loved doing the freelance bit a little bit more. And so I was like, oh, I left for this thing, but I actually, you know, the ability to use everything that I learned, because when you're at a startup, it's such a bubble and you think, you know, all of my skills are just useful here. Mm. And, you know, three years later, I'm like, wow, I learned a lot of great, you know, building blocks four things, but I actually can work across industries and I can work in hardware and software. And um, it's just been a really great opportunity for me to um, kind of build the life I want. And again, thinking, I mentioned this in the lead, like I kind of saw this in the last recession of like freelancing was like a way to bridge between jobs or a way to... um, continue to you know work at least try to work i wonder if, if you've seen that recently out there again with covid um and what's going on now yeah it's been interesting i <laughs> i um had actually been doing a lot of events um towards mm. the end of last year and i in february started working on a dinner series with an organization that really couldn't be, and I will be the person to say this because everyone thinks everything can be translated to online. It was not really a thing that could be translated to online. Um, I like when events come back, people are going to go to them because they're recognizing the importance of human interaction. Um, and it was very much a series that relied on serendipitous moments and and conversation coming up that just doesn't happen in in video chats. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a contract that was going to go to December. 
Oh, and geez. yeah, which was one of the longer contracts that I've taken, not with like a, like there's been a couple of companies that know me as a human that have known me for a while that I've stepped in and, and put on different hats. And I'm like, if they need me, they'll just throw me in. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll, I'm just like essentially on the bench. But yeah, so at the beginning of all this, I was like, ah, and I had taken some time off. I had done like a vol- um, some disaster relief volunteer work in January, actually. So my January was also, I was wearing N95 masks and using hand sanitizer in a place that didn't have running water. <laughs> oh so I was like gosh. a little bit prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ran a conference in February. And so I was going to jump into this event gig. So for me, it was super tough to try and figure things out as people that I'd been talking to were like, I don't know where the budget is for this thing. Mm -hmm. And so, and to be honest, even as an event person, like I didn't want to become a master video conference person. Like that Mm -hmm. just isn't something I want to like create in-person experiences. That is like something Mm -hmm. that I'm just, I'm just way more drawn to. And I know there are talented people doing online work again. Like people are like, do you want to do online events and we'll hire you? And I'm like, no, I'm all set. (laughs) The uncertainty of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, even as a freelancer, right? The, you got to have clients, you got to have folks who kind of know what they want. And yeah, right now it's pretty tough. Yeah. So a bunch of people have, I've talked to a lot of people during the pandemic that are like, I want to dip my toe into freelancing. And I'm like, cool. How much do you like your health insurance yeah, and doing taxes? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, I rarely talk to people about the work that they're going to do. I'm like, here's the situation. F- like health insurance is super tough, especially mm-hmm. if you have a family, if you don't have a partner, mm-hmm. like that is the stuff no one really talks about you, yeah. talks about with you. Um, you know, taxes are the worst. <laughs> Just terrible. Just terrible. Do you have an accountant friend that you actually like? Uh, because not all the softwares will be helpful for you. Um, do you like being around people? Can you manage your time without other people asking you to wanting to meet with you during the midday and like whatever? Like some some of my freelance work I've arranged to be in the office and like have a mm. desk and stuff like that. But if you are I think people are learning about it now. It's like, wow, if I am not in an office environment, it is very hard for me to do work (laughs) when there are dirty dishes and, uh, and a a washer and, you know, 10 episodes on Netflix that I haven't watched. So it's, there's a lot more around the discipline and just the operational stuff that people don't recognize. Mm. You know, again, I, I have such an outward job doing community building. So people, see me speak or MC or running around my head cut off or, you know, just doing stuff. So thankfully I have a lot of people that um, people ask me like how they get leads. I'm like, I just post on LinkedIn that I'm looking for work. (laughs) I love those posts that you do. I have an investor list of about, I think 50 or so people that when I make a big move, um, I send something out quarterly. That's like TLDR, I'm looking for a new work. Here's what I do. Here are examples of jobs that um, might fit me and things that I'm really excited about. Here are things that annoy me. Like I just get super insane and just make it again. I think it's the customer experience part. I'm like, Mm -hmm. how can I make it as easy as possible for people to help me? And again, that's just the nature I'm like lucky because that's like the nature of my work is to yeah, it aligns nicely. Yeah, Yeah. that's cool. Well, you have such a great 
you know, personal brand, right? I love Trish of all trades. Uh, so how do you think that your personal brand has helped you in your freelancing career? And, and what advice do you have for folks who are looking to develop, you know, their own personal brand? For sure. I mean, I think um, alliteration has helped me a lot, to be like completely honest. <laughs> uh, people love hearing Trisha of all trades because they're like, oh, I see what you did there. Um, so to be like totally honest, if you're naming something, make sure it's something that is easy to say and Googleable and uh, something that ties into like what you're actually doing. Um, but I mean, I think it's a it's less of a freelance thing and just like a professional thing is there are values that I have for me as a person that I try to live and do as much as possible because I am, um, like we mentioned earlier, like I'm a little bit of that bleeding heart community builder. And, um, but I think it's coming up with, you know, what do you stand for? What kind of work do you want to do? And really sticking to it because even though I am a Trish of all trades, when I kind of circle back to everything, of all the projects that I've done, despite them being hardware software, despite them going into different industries. For me, it's about heart. It's about belonging. It's about inclusivity. And that could be an event. That can be an online platform. That can be anything. So for me, it's, you know, and people are like, oh, I'm, I'm going to send you this thing. It might be like a career change or like something that's off the bat. I'm like, if it has, if it's a great product that I can relate to and the team is awesome and transparent and um, is passionate. Like I want to talk to those people no matter what. So coming up with, you know, what do I stand for? What are things that I want to work on? Um, and what are the kind of give and takes for things, you know, depending on where my rent is, <laughs> my rent fund is at the time, I might take on, you know, helping an early stage startup. I might take on working with a nonprofit, et cetera. And so, you know, budgeting, I think is really important. But, um, you know, the personal brand stuff, people get really like, and, and, you know, it's less about Instagram filters and it's more about who you are and how you want to get your points across and stop trying to be a thought leader and start recognizing the power of your own voice and your own thoughts. And if you're really passionate about the things you're working on, you become a thought leader because of that energy. Um, so don't model yourself after other people, um, talk about things that you're just excited about and the right people will gravitate to you. Yeah, that's awesome. Oh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and perspective. Thanks. Listeners, <laughs> check out Trisha's work. She's an avid public speaker and yes, consultant and freelancer. And you can learn more on her website, trishofalltrades.com. And hey, you can learn more and hire her there. How about that? Boom. Great. And Trish, please stick around. We'd love to have you join us for our conversation with Sydney Janey. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine. 
which will be sent to design museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. And we're back. We're joined by our special guest, Sydney Janey of Sydney Janey Design. Sydney started her studio in 2007, where she focuses on graphic design, branding, campaign design, and much more. She's also an educator, having been an adjunct professor at Emerson College, and she did a really cool project. She developed a design curriculum for workforce development uh, at the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts. So we're very excited to have her. Sydney, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're very happy to have you. Uh, to start, I'd love to just start at the beginning. And I wonder if you can tell us sort of your journey into starting your studio. I uh, had one of those crises at the end of my summer after undergrad, which was I've been in school since I was two years old and now <laughs> I'm not expected to go back to school at back to school time. And I don't know what to do with my life. So I applied to a graduate school program. <laughs> as, as one does. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because I was in Boston. Yeah. And so um, I was at uh, ART uh, through Leslie for a semester and got hired at Houghton Mifflin as a designer. And so I was working there. And then two years into my experience at Houghton, they got bought out by a European publisher and laid off, started like rolling layoffs. And uh, I was in grad school. I didn't quite worry about being out on the street. Mm, yeah. And so um, I started freelancing um, because looking for work proved to be hard. Mm -hmm. I got laid off. Um, right before my birthday. So like January, right after Christmas, January of 2007. I did look for work, but it was really hard to find employment. And there was a couple of instances where it was obvious that they didn't expect me to be African-American when I walked into the door. And it was like, we don't know if you'll be comfortable in this environment. Oh it's gosh. a small studio. And so I started my business by doing things like going to the Center for Women and then uh, like basically sourcing all the different resources that Boston has. And so like becoming a certified woman-owned business, minority-owned business with the city and the state and figuring out those avenues, that wasn't necessarily a difficult thing for me. But learning the process and the quote-unquote the game of navigating all of that. And then seeing, as it has always been, how few people, like how few women, and then how few people of color there were in these spaces. Yeah. And I was like, I want to see more people like me. How do you get clients? Like how do you, and then, you know, and then you do the work for them and then you do it again and you get <laughs> new clients. And like, how does that mm -hmm. all work? Mm. What is that process? Like the whole marketing machine and learning about that. I am fantastic at putting that together for my clients. <laughs> Seeing it, I'm like, ooh, I know how to fix you. I, I can see all the pieces doing it for me. It's like, hmm. It's like the cobbler whose children don't have shoes. <laughs> like I can 
make your business look fantastic. My own getting business has been like word of mouth, doing doing work for my clients. My clients are generally repeat customers. Um, usually if I have helped them establish their brand or done a small project for them in the beginning of their business and they've grown, they come back and they're like, hey, we're starting a new line of something or we have now gotten to a point where our clients know us, but we want to go further or expand our product line or expand our service offerings. And we want more people to know about us or we want to go bigger. There's a lot of like education piece. And I think because part of my motto, uh, I feel like it's a spiritual gift, is like demystifying the process. Like I really don't like when people prey on other people's ignorance. I'm all about just, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Like it, I'll just explain it. And I think when you demystify whatever that is, which is communication, visual communication is design. So when you're visually communicating or fully communicating what the problem is or helping the person out with fixing their problem, they get more comfortable and they want to come back. Yeah. When you, um, we talked a little about this with Trish, and, um, but the whole idea of like being selective with clients. Oh, yes. Because I think you you do such a good job of that as well. Like, I think you know what you want to work on. And yes, I'm sure that changes, Trish mentioned, based on like when the bills are coming in. But can you talk about that? Like the the ability to choose, I think is very interesting and unique. So earlier um, in my career, it was, I just need work. I need work because I need experience. I need work because I need money. I need work. I need work, 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 work. I have a lot of very wise people in my life. God has blessed me with uh, a great family and wonderful friends and even fantastic mentors. They have, there have been some gems. Um, one of which, you know, kind of sticks in my mind. My uncle said, not all money is good money. Of course, this is the same uncle who always was like, are you going to get a job? And I'm like, I have a company. Like, come on, dude. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I, I am the job, but whatever. And so figuring out one, chasing work is not always the key. I am very much like Trish. Like if I'm not passionate about what you're doing, it's very hard for me to create or ideate, which I know kind of sucks, but my energy kind of knows or would gravitate towards somebody. I would have, God would only make me have a conversation with somebody who would probably be agreeable to my stuff. Like, it's very rare that I come across somebody where I'm like, oh, hell, I'm, I'm not doing that. Like, the cost makes it okay for you to feel some kind of way about it. Like, sure, I'll do that for you at $175 an hour because at $175 an hour, I'll be aggravated because then I can pay all kinds of bills and go Amazon shopping. I'm less aggravated at $175 an hour than I am at $50 an hour. Um, I had read, uh, I think it was from the base date where you had talked about a client that uh, wasn't going to pay even though you finished work and had already invoiced them. And I don't know if you can remember that instance, but I think it's, again, 
I talked about during this, during the early part of this uh, podcast, but people don't talk about the invoicing part and how difficult it can be and the negotiation around that and deliverables um, around that. So I'm wondering, it seems like that interview was a few years ago. Has that changed for you in any way? Or are there some other tips that you would give freelancers on that, you know, final deliverable or the invoicing part of freelancing? Yes, it has more or less changed. I had a client who like was in the rears actually call me up within five minutes. And I really didn't like put that out for that particular person, but I digress. God moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> um, so in the last couple of years, yes, it has gotten better, but I think it's more because my headspace has gotten better about it. Um, one, um, I got less emotionally attached to the billing process. I realized that that is not accounting money is not like where I'm passionate. Obviously, I'm more on the creative side, but uh, until I can pay someone to fully take that over, uh, I realize that as much as I'm excited about a job and I really want to get in there, start. You can't start until you get your deposit. Your deposit has to be at least you know, 50% of what you're going to do up front because you got to live, you got to eat, you got to keep the lights on, you know, you can't be in fear of losing your home. I now own my family house. My father passed away last year, so I'm like full on adulting now. Kind of sucks. Um, I'm like, nobody told you that this part sucks. Uh, so... And you don't give final deliverables in all files until you get that final payment. And when people get nasty about that, you're like, dude, you, you pay for your gas. You pay for all kinds of stuff. You don't go into Whole Foods and you're like, hey, I'm going to take this roast. Yeah, and I'll be back in 30 and days. And I'll negotiate. <laughs> right. Right. Or sometimes, like, you might have to get, like, you may have to get like a friend to be like, I need you to make some calls for me. To just, you know, say you're from the billing department. You know. What do you know now about running either your freelance practice, consulting practice, solo practice that you wish you could travel back in time and tell yourself when you first started? Don't sweat the small stuff. Like, don't. Uh, not don't care as much, but don't like, I think, um, have more self care about things instead of caring. Like I, ca I cared a lot about what my clients thought and, but it was sort of, don't be so emotional about the outcome of thing emotions around billing is something i really again it's not my the business op side is not really my forte it's not something i'm really interested in but i had that one client that like really messed things up and my you know having a financial plan so that if i don't get paid um that's really important um you know freelancers union 
this stat must be a little this it must be a few years old at this point but freelance union is like an organization i don't think there's actually a boston chapter but they said that the average amount that a freelancer loses a year is six thousand dollars and for a lot of people that is you know months of rent bills etc and so you can always plan for that especially when you're first starting out so having some sort of financial plan for yourself or something that you can do to make sure that that's that is all set but i got to know the um you know attorney general and the assistant attorney general and wage theft and they do wage theft workshops um because some of the work that i was doing could be construed as employee work instead of um instead of freelance work which no one i've never been to a panel where anyone's talked about that um and so it's really interesting to just go um, you, you know, submit a question, they get back to you. The assistant attorney general was really amazing. They talked to the client and they were like, I don't know if we have anything here, but sometimes when we reach out and say that we're from the attorney general's yeah, office, things start to that's move. All it takes. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. all it takes. Sometimes all, all it takes is a phone call from someone who has a title. I would say, if you job, can't get your friend, get the like, assistant attorney general. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, you are a so, your solo practitioner. Some, you know, as other folks, if you own like Sydney, probably maybe hires folks sometimes freelancers. If you're on your own and don't own your own business, you don't. You generally don't subcontract. But when you're by yourself, like everyone becomes part of your village, and so that networking piece is so so important. Even if you, I know so many people are like I hate networking. It's like no one really likes networking. No. Um. So I have one last question for both of you. And this is a question that's for, you know, someone who's listening, who's thinking about getting into freelancing, right? They're thinking about this. What is your advice on like their first step, right? Like what is the first thing? Sure. I think it's narrowing down what kind of projects you want to take on and whether for me personally, it was do I have the network to kind of get me started on this again, because I'm a horrible salesperson. <laughs> So for me, like, for example, a client that I have right now is someone that I met nine years ago in a in Mass Challenge, which is um, a startup accelerator space for people that don't know. And they just saw me in the office all the time. And they were like, I know you're a building community for that startup that you're at. And I just remember that. And I think they got it was a video messaging startup. And so I think they got a video from me. And it was very much the Maya Angelou, like, I remember how it made me feel. I don't remember what you said kind of thing. So I think for me personally, I think for for a lot of folks, because it is so early getting those first clients, is what kind of projects can I start with? And do I have the network and people that are willing to hire me to do this? So the the like optimal part of freelancing is maybe you're working a full-time job. And for me, I would recommend having, if you're allowed to have like a little bit of a side hustle to see if that is, you know, something you can work into. One whatever they're doing currently figuring out if they have the self-will or self-control to not being in a controlled work environment so a lot of people fantasize about working from home i think covid has kind of given everybody the push to finally experience the work from home situation. Uh, I've had some friends who I think are slowly losing their minds because they're now working from home and they've never done that before. 
um, it's it's it, it can be hard because you never turn it off, right? Like if you love what you do, you're living in your house, working from home, you end up working way more than eight hours a day and five days a week. Figuring out if you can sustain uh, the networking, finding clients, or even what kind of projects you want to do. And if those projects can fund your life, because if it's if they're not big enough or if they can't scale up, looking into if if you're completely fresh and new, looking into a, um, programs like Optima or an accelerator. But um, yeah, just avail yourself mm-hmm. of all the free resources that yeah, that's are here. Nice. Love it. Thank you. Thank you both. And thank you, Sydney, uh, for sharing your story, your advice. Uh, it's really meaningful. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Listeners, check out more of Sydney's work. And hey, hire her for graphic design projects and more. Uh, visit sydneyjaneydesign.com. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we share examples of good design that has impacted us or others in some meaningful way. Liz, why don't you start us off this week? Yeah, so today I wanted to talk about Zaha Hadid, who is one of my all-time favorite architects. Uh, She was a British-Iraqi architect who was the first woman to receive the Pritzker Prize in 2004. And what I absolutely love about her style is just how bold it is. You know, some buildings are very fluid and others are edgy, but they all have this very striking and futuristic quality that makes you kind of stop and observe and appreciate the design. Uh, Zaha, in my mind, was a true visionary and pioneer in the architectural space, uh, breaking new ground and innovating in, you know, ways that really had never been done before. Uh, When you look at one of the projects, it's impossible not to realize that someone designed it, right? That someone put a lot of thought into every single aspect of of the design. So to me, she is a reminder of what's possible, not just in architecture, but in design and innovation. And if anyone hasn't heard of Zaha, it's definitely worth a quick Google search. And uh, I promise you won't, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, her work's incredible. So good. Awesome. Thank you. All right, I'll go next. Uh, This week, my weekly dose comes from a story in the New York Times. I love the story because I love national parks. Um, So first, after the Great Depression, the Works Progress Administration commissioned artists and designers to create posters for 13 national parks and national monuments. And this was like in the 1930s and 40s. But the original designs, designers were basically like lost to time and totally forgotten about. But then we get to enter this 74-year-old man. His name's Doug Lean. He's a retired backcountry dentist. That's right. He does dentistry in the backcountry. And he made it his life's work to track down as many of the original WPA National Park posters as he could. And so these posters sort of have that like propaganda like simple yet complex illustration style that's now sort of like the classic like travel poster style and so Doug now like scours the country looking for these things he started collecting the originals and he started a business uh, creating reproductions and selling uh, the posters 
as well as now commissioning new ones for the other national parks that didn't get designs. Uh, and his business is called Ranger Doug's Enterprises. And you can find his works at pretty much all the gift shops, you know, when you go to a national park. So you'll see postcards and posters. Uh, check out the story and the posters. I will post a link to the New York Times story. Uh, I love what they call him in the story. They call him the Ranger of the Lost Art, which is just a great Indiana Jones reference. So enjoy. Cool. All right, Trish, you're up. Yeah. So something that I was thinking about um, recently that I think has impacted me, and I didn't realize how much it impacted me until up until now, but it made me think of it around school, is Emerson College orientation in the lens of like a really amazing community and onboarding experience. So I went to Emerson. Um, the orientation leaders go through a week of training. Uh, about a month before you come to school, you get a handwritten note from your orientation leader. And mine was on bright green paper. And I just, even back then, I wasn't used to getting these handwritten notes. And he was already joking. It was an upperclassman. They're already joking with me. They said everybody's minor was in drama. And I was like, <laughs> LOL, that's amazing, but also terrifying at the same time. And then when you show up to Emerson and you're, whoever your, your grown-ups are that bring you to college, uh, they have people just cheering. So as soon as the door is open, you just hear, ah, and they get your name and it's like, Trish, Trish is here. And they just come in and take all the stuff that you've moved to college, load it up. Your, your grownups don't have to do anything. And it was just awesome because my dad was an engineer and he came with like rope and a hand truck and pulleys. And it was just a completely different experience than when my brothers went off to college. And I just thought, it, as I think about him, like one, I'm completely obsessed with handwritten notes. My parents' experience and my experience of they're bringing their youngest kid, only girl, to the city that is five hours away from them. And even though they weren't all my friends, I was being received in this like really lovely, um, I felt like it belonged, just just awesome, welcoming experience. So thinking about like ambassadorship and and how those really great experiences turn people to fans and stuff is there are just so many things that can tie into that. Yeah, I love that. There's so much inspiration there. Wow, very good. I love it. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, and thanks, Trish, for being here. It was great to have you. Yeah, this is so fun. Yeah, awesome. That's our show. Thanks for joining us. And thank you again to Trish Fontanilla and Sydney Janey for sharing their thoughts and ideas. I really just think you should hire them both. Just do it. Uh, as always, we'll post links to their websites as well as to the other resources we discussed. That'll all be on our episode page. Uh, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. And if you're not a member or subscriber, be sure to join and get the latest issue of Design Museum Magazine. We're really proud of this issue and grateful to all the contributors. You're going to love it. Yeah, definitely. It's an awesome issue. Uh, also, please say hello on social media. We love your messages. You can find us on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. And it's super easy to find us on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And as always, make sure to subscribe to Design Is Everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really means a lot to us that you subscribe and when you share the podcast with your friends and family. This episode was written by me, Sam Aquilano, and produced by Ryan Flom, and we're edited by Amanda Martinez. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For Liz Pollack and the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for joining us today. And we'll talk again next week. Bye, everyone.